0: Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Galatians chapter six, Galatians chapter six. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can grab one of the ones in the pew in front of you. It's page 916, if you're using one of the Bibles there. It'll be helpful if you've got the Bible open and can follow along. We're in the book of Galatians. So this is the practice at our church, if you've only been with us a couple of times, is uh, that we preach through Bible books. So we start at the beginning, we work through to the ends. There's a couple of reasons for that. So one reason is it's always helpful to study a text in context. It's easy to pull something out and take it out of context. We all know this, right? It happens all the time in the world. Something somebody says and it gets pulled out of context. Well, by preaching through an entire book, so the letter of Galatians, we started in chapter one, verse one, we'll go to the end of chapter six. By doing it that way, it keeps it in context, which is helpful. But then also preaching through Bible books that way It means that we deal with all the things god puts in his word some things really popular easy to understand stuff that we would love other things more difficult but see we're forced to deal with even those difficult things because we're just preaching through the word as it comes both those things there's other reasons but those two prime things really really helpful and why we do it that way here we just preach through bible books so here we are in galatians been in galatians several months and we're here uh, towards the end of chapter six. So um, so Lord willing, Pastor Mark will preach from 1 uh, uh, Samuel this coming Sunday. And then after that, we'll finish up Galatians. We'll wrap it up with the end of, uh, of chapter six. But here we are in verses six through 10 of chapter six. There's an outline on the back of the worship guide if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on as, as we move along. It's got the main points there. Galatians six, six through 10 um if uh, if you walk into a, a say a garden shop i don't even this is how often i've done this i've done this zero times because i don't even know what to call it but a place that would sell seeds and so you walk in and you're gonna buy seeds i have seen those seed packets though and they've always got a huge picture of the flower or the plant or the fruit or vegetable and then it's got written there big letters and that makes sense because people that are buying seeds they want to know what plant that seed will produce that's the whole point they want a certain plant, and so they go in to get the right seed, the seed that corresponds with that, with that plant. Well, in our passage, Paul compares the, the actions in our life. So the things that we do, the way we live our life, he compares it to seeds. And, and he says that every person, every person who's ever lived will end up being one of two kinds of, of plants. So a plant that's headed for eternal life or a plant that's headed for destruction. And most importantly, He tells us the kinds of seeds to sow in life that lead to being one kind of plant versus the other. So it's really significant that that we listen to this teaching, serious things that Paul's talking about here. So so with that understanding, hear the word of the Lord. Galatians 6, 6 through 10, Paul says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith." Okay, so that's our passage. Here's how we're gonna look at it. Here's the structure that kind of comes out of this passage. So we're, we're gonna start by going to the middle of the passage, which is a little bit unusual. Usually take it as it comes, but it seems wise this morning to go to the middle of the passage to see the main principle. And the main principle is, what you sow is what you will reap. So the kinds of seeds you pitch out, that's the kind of plant that's gonna come up, right? What you sow is what you will reap. And then we're gonna look at the three different groups of people Paul tells us to sow goodness toward which is, first, the one who teaches you the Bible, and then all people, second group, and then the third group, especially believers. And then the final thing we're going to look at, we're going to end with Paul's final exhortation for us to not give up sowing this kind of goodness, because it will pay off. So that's the way that we're going to look at this passage. So we'll start with the principle, which again is what you, will, what you sow is what you will reap. So verse 7, He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Okay, so there's the principle. Whatever one sows, Paul says, that will he reap. And of course, he's not talking about sowing literal seeds and then having fruit produced from those plants. He's talking about the reality that our actions in life produce consequences, which is something that we all know, we see it all the time. And this is an analogy that's used throughout the Bible. This sowing uh, sowing and reaping, compared to the way we live our lives and that there's consequences for our actions. So Sam read earlier from Proverbs 22, this is the last verse he read, Proverbs 22 verse eight, whoever sows injustice, pitches out those seeds, will reap calamity. So they're talking about there in Proverbs, if you live your life taking advantage of people and being unkind and being dishonest, that kind of life will produce calamity. It will produce trouble, so bad actions, will produce bad results. When Israel had been continually disobedient to the Lord, listen to what the prophet Hosea says. He uses the same analogy. Hosea chapter eight, verse seven. For they sow the wind and they shall reap the whirlwind. He uses the example of winds to make the same point. You know, If you're sowing the seeds of wind, don't be surprised if there's gonna be a tornado that comes back at you. Bad actions will produce bad results. He gives the flip side, the good version of it, In Hosea 10, verse 12, and there he says, sow for yourselves righteousness so you can reap steadfast love. The prophet Isaiah, he includes both good and bad. Same illustration, Isaiah 3, verse 10, tell the righteous that it shall be well with them for they shall eat the fruit of their deeds. Woe to the wicked, it shall be ill with him for what his hands have dealt out shall be done to him. So what you sow is what you'll reap. And we don't need the Bible to tell us this. This is the way that the world works. We see it all the time, right? So so if you're a young person here, if you're in school and you've got a test in a difficult subject and you don't study, you typically don't do well on that test. So you're reaping the thing that you sowed. Actions have consequences, right? Or if you're kind of mean to one of your friends, that relationship with that friend is gonna feel a little bit strained. Same thing, you reap what you sow. We know this is grownups. So I remember in Maine, uh, uh, I'd, I'd never had to worry about weight things, and uh, wait like W-E-I-G-H-T, weight things. And um, we, one of the pastors in Maine and his wife told me, you can do that now, but they said, wait till you're 40, and then things are going to change. And I remember sort of being like, I'm sure that's true, but inside I was like, that's not true that's not going to happen that's going to be fine and lo and behold I mean a few months I feel like after turning 40 it was like oh this is different, I have to think about these things now, so. If you're like me, you understand this was sowing and reaping, so the, the way we eat our activity level that helps determine our weight same principle right sowing and reaping. Oftentimes, the amount of time and energy we put in at work determines our success and our job. It's the way God set up the world, right? You reap what you sow. But see, here's the big difference between all those examples that we see all around us and what Paul is talking about here. The reaping Paul's talking about doesn't take place until after your death. So it's not like those other examples where in this life, in the short term, or even the long term in this life, you reap what it is that you've sown no, Paul's talking about a reaping that doesn't take place until your death. We know that because at the end of verse 8, he talks about reaping eternal life, which is obviously a future prospect, you know, after death. And if you're here and you're, you're not a believer, you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you ever think about that, you know? What does happen after I die? It's so easy. This world's all around us, so it's easy to walk by sight. Only think about this world, the here and the now. But good question to think about. What do I think happens? after I die. Well, the Bible's clear that that the most important thing that happens is that we will all stand before our creator. So in an instant, we'll stand before the one who, who made us and all of a sudden, the most important thing in your life will turn out to be what the Lord thinks about you. Something that's kind of easy to not think about much in this life, but standing before the Lord, all of a sudden, we will all realize this was the most important topic of thought that I had in life is what the Lord thinks about me. So, so whereas our good or bad actions have lots of immediate results or long-term res- results in this life, the kind of actions Paul's talking about, their ultimate results won't be seen until your earthly life is, is done. So look at verse eight, he says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So the kind of life you lead, this is just summing up what Paul just said, the kind of life you lead, the kind of life I lead, will lead to either eternal death or eternal life. Paul says the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now that doesn't mean the kind of life the Christian leads is the basis for getting into heaven. It'd be easy, if we only had this verse, we'd probably think that. But no, we have a whole Bible that gives us context for this verse. Now, Paul's made it super clear all throughout the letter of Galatians, the sole basis for getting into heaven is the work of Jesus. We understand our work is always broken. Even as Christians, we still sin, we fall short. It happens all the time. Our motives are mixed, even as Christians. Know that the only one who has a perfect track record is Christ, that's what we need. He's, He's the one who gives us that innocent verdict. When we trust alone in Christ alone, that's the good news of Christianity, that's the gospel. We trust alone in Christ alone, or given his righteousness, he paid for our sins on the cross. That's the sole basis for why anybody will get into heaven, right? So Paul's not undercutting that. It's exactly what he told us back in chapter 2, verse 16. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, the good things you do in this life. We're not justified by that, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But we also understand that, that faith in Christ, a living faith, produces good fruit so the kind of faith that's a true faith is a living faith and living things produce fruit so we have a tree in our backyard right now that there are not many leaves coming off of that tree and so we're thinking okay that tree is probably dead could be dead we need to take care of that tree how do we know that we don't have to dig into the soil or you know do some kind of test on the tree no it just quit producing fruit so if something doesn't produce fruit, it's, it's not alive. So, so that's the idea here. The great Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, he said it this way. He said, although we're justified by faith alone, the faith that justifies is never alone. It brings good works along with it. And in fact, for, for the person who says they're a Christian, even thinks that they're a Christian maybe, but doesn't have any fruit of that belief in their outward life, Paul says in verse seven, that person is mocking God. So that person is, is acting like they're gonna trick him, but God is never tricked, right? God's never fooled. There was a movie theater within walking distance of our house growing up. He built his movie theater there when we were in middle school. And so we would walk to that movie theater and, and we would see movies and we worked up the courage. We'd thought about it before, but probably seventh grade, we finally worked up the courage to buy a ticket to a PG movie and try to sneak into an R-rated movie. We were in the seventh grade, we weren't allowed to buy those tickets. So we're trying to play it cool, although our hearts are probably beating really fast. We buy those tickets, we sneak in, we think that our plan is perfect, the theater is dark. We sit down and it was a couple of minutes before an attendant walks in with a flashlight and says, can I see your tickets? And we had to show those tickets and then we promptly got ex, uh, escorted to the, the other theater where we'd actually bought tickets for the, the other movie. We, we thought that our plan was great, right? We thought we were being really clever, but, but they caught us. Well, that's what happens with the Lord. He, he's gonna catch everybody. Nothing is, is hidden from him. He's never fooled. Verse seven, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And as Paul makes clear here in verse 8, true faith in Christ produces the kind of life where one sows to the Spirit. Okay, so, so what does that mean? So we've got this analogy, pitching out seeds, right? But, but to sow to the Spirit, what's that mean? What's that phrase mean? Well, it's just another way of saying what Paul's already told us a bunch. Chapter 5, verse 16, he calls it walk by the Spirit. He says, but I say walk by the Spirit. Or chapter 5, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. So to sow to the spirit, same thing as walking in the spirit or keeping in step with the spirit. It just means pursue the kind of life that the Lord wants you to pursue. Go the direction that God's Holy Spirit wants us to go. That's what it means to sow to the spirit. And and Paul told us what that kind of life looks like back in chapter five, verses 22 through 23 with the fruit of the spirit. So look there, chapter 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So to sow to the Spirit is is to pitch your seeds of life in the direction the Spirit goes, to do those kinds of things that we just read. And like verse eight makes clear, it's the opposite of sowing to the flesh, which just means our, our sinful nature. So sowing to the flesh, is just self-indulgence, self-interest, doing the thing that we want to do for ourselves. Look over at chapter five, verses 19 through 21. He gives us some of the works of the flesh, some examples. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it's the same idea we see here as we saw there. He's saying if, if you live this kind of life, if, if you pitch your seeds this way, then he says, don't expect to get into heaven. Same thing he's telling us in verse eight in our passage. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Okay, so, so all that said, so the stakes are high according to scripture. So Paul's saying that, that eternal life and eternal death are on the line here. So we should all be really interested in sowing to the spirit. And even though the Lord has already told us some, some fruits of the spirit, like we just read in chapter 5, 22 through 23, in our passage, he zooms in on one of them, which is goodness. So it's a fruit of the spirit in chapter five. He zooms in on it here. So, so the question Paul's answering is, how would this passage tell you specifically to sow seeds to the Spirit? Well, here Paul says, by offering goodness to others. That's what he zooms in here on in this passage. In fact, a version of that word goodness shows up three times in these five verses, which is Christians, when you're studying the Bible, that's something you're always looking for. It's one of the first things to look for. In inductive Bible study, so if you're looking at a kind of a small passage and kind of trying to see, like, detail wise, what is this passage teaching? Look for the repetition of words. Oftentimes that's the way the Lord will show you kind of what one of the main ideas there is or or the main idea. Well, we see that word goodness in various forms show up three times in these five verses. Look at verse six. He says, let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. We see it in verse nine. And let us not grow weary of doing good. And then verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So the main point of these verses is, is the one who sows goodness will reap eternal life? That's the main idea of this passage, but as Paul oftentimes does, he gives us some direction on what that goodness should look like on the ground, practically. How should it come out? And, and he does it by pointing to three different categories of people that you should sow goodness towards. So first, Second main point, but the, the first group that he tells us to sow goodness to First, do good to those who teach you the Bible. Verse six, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Okay, this gets at a theme we see all throughout scripture. Teaching has always been central to God's people the whole way through. So, so you can just think about it. What's the first thing that God does with Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis one? He teaches them. He tells them about him. He tells them about them, who they are. He tells them about their task. He tells them things to do. He tells them things not to do, which they end up doing. So the first thing God does is he, he teaches them. What's God do with Abraham in Genesis 12? He teaches him about the covenant promise that he's making to Abraham and what that means, what that covenant will do and how it'll build God's people. He teaches him. What's God do as soon as he gets his people out of Egypt, out of slavery and brings them to to Sinai, he uses Moses to teach them God's law, to bring God's word down to the people. The second half of the Old Testament, completely taken up with the prophets. So all those funny names, big books, the major prophets, and then the smaller ones, the minor prophets, not because they're unimportant, but because they're smaller. All the prophets are doing is taking God's word to God's people. It's the second half of the Old Testament. How does Jesus sum up the purpose of his earthly ministry? Probably a lot of people wouldn't know this. If you just ask somebody who thought, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with Jesus, and you said, what do you think Jesus' ministry was about? What was the main thing he was trying to do in his earthly ministry? Well, Jesus answers that question for us. Mark chapter 1, verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach, for that is why I came out. Okay, so teaching, it's always been central among God's people. So, so it's no surprise that in local churches, like this one, in local churches of Jesus Christ, he wants teaching to be central. So you can just think about, think about the end of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is talking with Peter, and he asked Peter three times, do you love me? It's probably because Peter denied him three times, so Jesus is making that connection there. Peter keeps saying, yes, I love you. You remember what he asks Peter to do? He says the same thing three times. He says to Peter, feed my sheep. Of course, what Jesus means by that is teach them the word, feed them with the bread of life, which is me and my word in scripture. And see, that's exactly what the New Testament office of pastor is supposed to be about, teaching the word. So, So you'll probably remember, but in Acts 6, there's this problem in the church in Jerusalem, the first Christian church ever, where the Greek speaking widows are being overlooked. So there's this ministry where food is being given to widows because in the first century, widows couldn't, they didn't have much recourse. They couldn't take care of themselves. So food's being given by the church to widows, but the Greek-speaking widows were kind of being overlooked. And so in God's providence, the church leaders uh, raise up this other office of deacon to take care of some of those practical necessities in the church. But but listen to what the, the pastors in that situation say. They say, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God. That's why the office of deacon was created in God's providence, so the practical needs of the church could be met, but the pastors would still be free from those tasks in order to study the word and to teach the word. It would not be right that we should give up preaching the word of God. Listen to what Paul tells this young pastor, Timothy, about his pastoral task. Paul sums it up for him, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. That's why among the moral qualifications to be a pastor, so 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we see these lists, hey, if if you want somebody to be a pastor, they have to be this kind of person. They have to have these characteristics. But one of the things it says is they have to be able to teach because that's central to the task of a pastor. So, so why, why is the task of teaching, why is it central in God's plan for his people? Well, it's because God's word is central to his plan for his people. And that's because it's God's word that brings life. So again, let's go back through the Old Testament and just see where that theme comes up. From the very beginning, it comes up time and time again. God's word brings life. So in Genesis 1, how did God create the universe? It's, it's interesting. We know that God's a spirit, right? He doesn't have body parts the way we do. He's immaterial. But when it talks about the way he creates the universe, it's significant that it doesn't say he used his hands to do it. There's times where we see that kind of anthropomorphic language in scripture God's mighty arm to save his people. He could have said that. No, he doesn't, he doesn't create with his hands, he creates with his words. He speaks, and creation comes into existence or how did god put a baby in sarah's belly when she was way too old to naturally conceive romans 4:17 tells us he called into existence this thing that did not exist he creates with his word he called or think about ezekiel 37 the vision god gives to ezekiel you remember he takes him out to this battlefield where there had been a big battle there were all these bones there so the flesh is long gone it's just bones and god says preach the word to these bones so that they'll live and so ezekiel preaches and then god brings those bones up and puts flesh on them isn't that a great picture that's what the word of god does it brings life and if you're a christian that's how god created spiritual life in you was through his word Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So if you're a Christian, God created spiritual life in you with his word. That's the thing he used to bring you back from the dead, to give you new birth, same way he created the universe. And of course, that's what he uses to nourish that spiritual life in you. So don't forget what Jesus says, Satan's tempting him, is what Jesus says, Matthew four, verse four, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So so for all these reasons, God has given the office of pastor to the church. God's intention is that particular local churches will find groups of men who meet the qualifications to help lead and shepherd that church, primarily through teaching God's word. It's the main thing pastors are supposed to do. But the, the ideal situation is at least for one of those elders or pastors, those words are used interchangeably, talking about the same office in the New Testament, elders, pastors, overseers, all talking about the same office. Ideally, one of those guys can be set apart where he doesn't have to have another job, and full time, he can be giving his time to the study of the word and teaching the word. So we see that even with Timothy, when Paul writes to him, there were other elders in that church, but it looks like Timothy was set apart to be able to, uh, to give his time to that uh, so that he didn't have to provide for his family in, in other ways. And we see this in the Old Testament with teachers of, uh, of God's people. So we see it with the Levites who were the priests. They were set apart for that task. So the other Israelites were giving part of their money so that the Levites could be set apart to perform that task. We, we see it with the prophets in provision for them. So you can think of the way that God provided for Elijah through that widow giving him food in 1 Kings 17. Or what Jesus says when he sends out the 12 apostles to preach to the surrounding towns, Luke ten seven. He said, and remain in the same house, his direction to the apostles, remain in the same house eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. And so this this is the first example Paul gives for how we can sow to the Spirit in this life by doing good to those who teach you the Bible. It's the first thing he says here. look again at the particular command, verse six. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Paul uses that verb share. Most places when he uses that, he's talking about money. He's talking about financial provision. You see that in Romans 12, 13, and Philippians 4, 5, among other places. The, the idea is that Christians should be, do, uh, should be sure that, that they're doing what they can with their resources to take care of their pastors who have been set apart for the work, and so who, who don't have recourse to other employment to take care of their family. Their job is to pastor the church. So he, he's saying to Christians, be sure that you're providing for those guys' needs. It's the same teaching we see in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 17. And there Paul says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul says sow seeds to the Spirit by doing good to those who preach you and teach you the Bible. And and as the one who is set aside to preach the Bible. So this is my job, which is crazy, crazy that I get paid to do the thing that I do. It's one of those things I used to tell the folks in Maine this, or I kind of just hope that you guys don't realize how crazy this, I mean, the Bible says to do it, so, right? But I might, sometimes I feel like I might as well be a baseball player, like a, a major league baseball player, like getting paid to play baseball. I get paid to study the Bible and to meet with people and to try to encourage people in their faith and then to preach and teach, which is an incredible thing. But, but as the one where this is my job, I can say and boast in the Lord for it, this church is really faithful at obeying this command. So we, we don't take this for granted. I have so many children. And this church is so good at providing for my family. We don't take it for granted, we, we boast in the Lord for that. And, of course, the pathway for that, the, the way primarily that members of this church get to participate in that is, is through regularly giving to the, to the church. So setting apart a, a full-time pastor, it's not the only thing we do with our budget, but it is one of the things we do with our budget. And, and verses like this make it clear that it's one of the most important things we do. And so if, if you're a member of Cornerstone, you get to fulfill this command in part by regular financial giving to the church. Paul actually uses... This, uh, this illustration of sowing and reaping, to talk about giving monetarily to the church. He does this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and there he says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under a compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Same kind of thing he's telling us to do in verse 6 in our passage. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. But it is good to take a second to recognize for the purpose of this command, this isn't motivated primarily by who the pastor is. So I hope that you guys like me. I've never seen anything different. You know, I, I, I hope and trust that that'll continue, but... The motivation to give and and support the the care of the pastor, it's not primarily because of his person or his character or anything like that. It's primarily because of the task. That's the important thing, is the task. So the the staff pastor, the one set apart to to preach and teach the word, uh, is the one who's bringing that word to the people. And it's interesting, verse 6, in verse 6 Paul could have said, share all good things with the elder, or the pastor. But he doesn't focus on the title. He focuses on the task. Share all good things with the one who teaches. So all that to say this, the reason a church supports a pastor is because the church values the Bible. It's not so much the pastor. No, it's what the pastor brings. It's it's the word. And so through that support, we're really sowing seeds to God's word, trusting he's going to accomplish good in our church through the preaching of scripture. So, so sow to the spirit by doing good to those who teach you the Bible. Second group of people were called to sow goodness toward, do good to all people. Sow goodness to all people. Look down at verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Okay, so that there's a unique responsibility to, to love fellow Christians in kind of a unique way. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. But before the Lord goes there, he gives us this general call to do good to everyone. And if you're a Christian or if you're a non-Christian who's familiar with the Bible, this call will not be surprising, right? Because God loves all people. God does good to all people. Listen to Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. There Jesus says, "'Your father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The idea is God is good even to his enemies. He provides even to people who don't like him, which just compare that with our culture. Isn't that so countercultural? So in our culture, we typically, our culture around us, they will do good to people they like. But how often does somebody generally do good, go out of their way to do good, to somebody who has made themselves their enemy? somebody who doesn't like them, somebody who's not their friend, who doesn't have anything to offer them. Well, that's what the Lord does. And he calls us as Christians, as his children, to do the same as our Father. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And historically, that's what Christians have been known for. Christians were the ones who loved people that the rest of society didn't really care about. People who didn't have much to offer. People who were weak, who were vulnerable. They, they were the ones who were not loved except by believers. Christians were the ones that were loving even their enemies. In fact, this, this is interesting. So, Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, beginning in 20th century. So, uh, this was one of the main reasons that he hated Christianity so much. Is he said that it was a religion of pity. And he thought pity will just slow down the human spirit. We need to move past these other weak people, right? We're, we're, not gonna, we're not gonna get strong by caring about these other people, a religion of pity. And he was exactly right about that first part. It is a religion of pity because the Lord is merciful and loving and does good to all. And this is children, we're supposed to seek to do good to all. So, so the question you should ask yourself by way of application is, am I known for doing good to others? And we never just want to study the word and get smarter. No, it's designed to change our hearts and to change our lives. So it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Am I known for doing good to others? So just think about the neighbors around your house. If they have a problem and they need help, do they know that they can come to you? Are you one of the first people that they'll come to? Because they know this person has a track record. They've loved me well before. I've seen them love other people. I've seen them do good To people, or what about your coworkers or your extended family? Do people reach out to you when they need help? In their eyes, are you known for doing good to others or are you really known more for doing good to yourself or maybe just your own household or your own close friends? In the words of verse 10, do you sometimes have the opportunity to do good to someone, but then you just pass them by? And I did this this past week. I was telling Tim last night. So I'm driving home. And I don't remember what, I think I was trying to get home to do yard work. We got these pine needles and we were going to put them down and it was supposed to rain. It didn't rain, but they had said it was going to rain. And so I'm driving by and there's a car on the side of the road with their hazard lights on. And so instantly I think, oh, I hope that person's okay. But then I weigh my options. And I think best case scenario, I pull over, the kids aren't with me, I could easily do this. And I walk back and I check on this person. But then I weigh that against the thing I'm going to do. And I think, oh, but I've got my plans. I got to get home and put down those pine needles and I need to do it before it rains. And so I look in the rearview mirror and I see that they have a cell phone. And then in my head, I was like, oh, they'll be fine. And I just go right along and almost instantly feel some conviction because I've been studying this passage all week long. It's the worst part about being a preacher is that you're just shown your sin so regularly throughout the week. And it is difficult to bring the word of the Lord on a topic where you regularly fall short. And that's just the design of it. God knows preachers are humans and sinners and that sort of thing. But I had, Paul uses that word opportunity. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. I had the opportunity and I sinned. I didn't take the opportunity. So sometimes I bet you're like me where you don't take those opportunities. Well, this passage is telling us, don't do that. Instead, be like the good Samaritan. Remember that in Luke 10, who inconveniences himself to help somebody who needs help. Of course, that's exactly what the Lord did for us before we were trusting in Christ. So before you were a Christian, and remember, none of us is born into this world as a Christian. We all come into this world as non-believers. That's our our natural bent is to be opposed to the Lord. Before you were a Christian, you you were spiritually destitute. And the Lord came and got you, didn't he? Not because of anything you did, he came and got you because he in love saw that you needed help. The son of God became a man and died on the cross for your sins in order to save you. Romans five says it this way, while we were still weak, while we were his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. And so it's no surprise, God's Spirit's pointing us in the same direction. So so do the Spirit by doing good to all people. But Paul does privilege a smaller group inside of that bigger group. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And this is the final group we should do good to, do good to fellow believers. So so as Christians, we should do good to everyone, but Paul says, but especially to those who are of the household of faith, which means fellow believers, household of faith, the family of Christ is what he's talking about. So there's, there's a priority here. If you're a Christian, your responsibility is ratcheted up when it comes to care within the body of Christ. We see this even in the Old Testament laws for Israel. This is Deuteronomy 23, verse 20, laws about interest payments, There, the Lord says, you may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge interest to your brother. So those within God's people, the Lord's saying, you can't charge interest to one another. It'd be like charging interest to your your literal brother or sister, which may be sometimes an okay thing to do, but generally a weird thing. If your blood brother or sister needs to borrow money and then you're charging interest, right? They could charge interest to somebody else, but not a fellow Israelite, that the standard care within God's people is ratcheted up. Verse 10 again. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And there's an analogy to this everybody will understand and and it's the picture of the literal family. So in the same way that you are responsible for your own children or spouse or grandchildren or nieces and nephews before you're responsible for the neighbor's kids, it's the same thing here. We're responsible for those in the body of Christ in a unique way. We have a special responsibility there and especially within our own local church. And that's because of course, in Christ we've become a family. In the words of verse 10, we've become a household. Listen to the way Jesus says it in Mark 10, 29. He says, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. So he's he's talking about Christians who get called maybe into some particular ministry, they become missionaries and they have to leave family. So he says, okay, there's nobody who's done that who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. The idea is when somebody becomes a Christian, they gain a huge family they gain a familial relationship with everybody else who's trusting in Christ. That's why the, the scriptures use the term brother and sister to talk about the, the family of God. And the Lord takes our care of one another really seriously. Verse 10 again, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Listen to James chapter 2, verse 15, same deal. He says, if a brother or sister, meaning a fellow Christian, is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that or we can think about first john chapter 3 verse 17 if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother fellow christian in need yet he closes his heart against him how does god's love abide in him So do good to those who are of the household of faith. Do good to to fellow believers. So to start, pray for one another. It's honestly, this isn't just a a pietistic thing. This is true. The best thing you can do for one another is pray for one another, period, paragraph. It's the best thing we can do for one another because the most significant thing that's going on in your life is always your heart. It's the thing the Lord cares about more than anything else. And we can't get to one another's hearts, but you know who can is the Lord. So we pray for one another, pray for spiritual growth, pray for your brothers and sisters that we cling to Christ, that we grow in the gospel together. So pray for one another, but also speak the word of the gospel to one another encourage your brothers and sisters to fully trust in Christ. Remind one another how good the gospel is. Those are ways we can do good to one another, but also do material care. Give material care for one another. So if, if you see a material need in a fellow member, try to step in and help that need if you're able. There are monetary needs in this church from time to time. You can let me know if you wanna be on the list of people that I contact when there's one of those needs where I'll say, hey, so-and-so has this need, can, can you help out? So let me know if you want to be on that list. I start with that list before I look for maybe getting benevolence from the line item in the church budget or, or look somewhere else. That's a really practical way that you could help to love one another inside of, uh, of this body. If you're a female, find one of the moms with young kids, offer to watch her kids for an afternoon or a morning so she can get things done, right? Offer to bring supper to a family that you know has lots going on. We have several members who are unable to drive. Let me know if you're willing to give a ride to one of those members, where they can come and do what we get to do every Sunday because we're healthy folks and we can drive, but they can't do unless somebody will help them do it. Let me know if, if you're willing to do that. There's all sorts of ways we can do this, right? But we are called to do unique good to fellow believers. And that comes standard with the Christian life, that kind of love for brother and sister in Christ. Listen how Paul says it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. He says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. What Paul's telling us to do in our passage is walk into that more and more. Verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith, do good to fellow believers. So so that's the principle set forth in the passage, right? You reap what you sow, we're supposed to sow goodness toward people. Paul gives us these three different groups, not an exhaustive list, right? We do good in other areas, but, but three areas that our passage focuses on. Do good to those who teach you the Bible. Do good to all people. Do good in particular to fellow believers. But one final point this morning is a reminder why we should do this. What's the motivation? Fifth point, don't give up because it will pay off. So actually sow goodness and don't give up because it will pay off. Sowing to the Spirit in these ways, living this Christian life, it will pay off. Verses eight and nine, last thing we'll look at. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. we can be honest it is difficult to do good to others it was much easier for me to just drive home and not pull off the side of the road and offer help where they might take me up on it and those kinds of situations can take a while doing good to others is hard oftentimes right but god gives us a motivation here in verse 9 to do good for in due season eventually we will reap if we do not give up. And again, the thing he's talking about reaping is eternal life, as we're told at the end of verse eight. In our passage, that's the motivation the Lord gives us for doing good. And the Lord speaks this way in lots of other passages of, of scripture too. So sort of conditional statements like this, if you do this, then this. You can usually locate them because of the word if. It lets let you know there's a conditional statement. If you do this, then this this so for in due season we will reap if we do not give up listen to first corinthians 15 1 same kind of statement now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preach to you or hebrews chapter 3 verse 14 he says we've come to share in christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end so, so having a life that displays your trust in Christ will pay off. That's what he's telling us here. Having a life that displays your trust in Christ will pay off, but only if you have a life that displays your trust in Christ. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So in the words of verse nine, don't give up. It's the last thing we're told here. That's the imperative. Don't give up. Like Paul says a phrase earlier, don't grow weary of doing good. And you might feel weary right now. You might think, why am I continually doing this? Why am I being selfless? Why why am I continuing to love people that are difficult to love? Why am I continually saying no to this sin when it would be so much easier to say yes to it? Why am I continually fighting against loving this world with my whole heart? It'd be so much easier to just walk by sight and put all of my hope in the stuff in front of me, right? In money and possessions and family and career. Why, why am I fighting that? Why am I doing this heavy lifting? Well, the Lord's saying, you're doing this heavy lifting because it'll be worth it. You're doing it for the same reason that farmers work hard because the harvest is coming. One day you'll die or Christ will return. And on that day, your work will finally be done. There will be no more wearying, tiring work. There'll be no more heavy lifting that comes from being a sinful person in a sinful world. You'll be able to rest. In the words of verse eight, you'll reap eternal life. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's pray together. And Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful, Father, that it it diagnoses us. So every place where we sin, every place we fall short, Scripture shows that to us. And and we understand how much we need that because by our very nature, we are proud people. We're people that, uh, that are very good at justifying our own behavior, our own lives. We're good at overlooking our own sins. We're not good at overlooking the sins of others, but we are very good in our sinful nature at overlooking our own sin. We're so thankful that the word comes to bear, that it's living and active, that it opens up our hearts and we get to see these particular sins Father, we're so thankful that you've brought the gospel to us that pays for all those sins. Father, we we know that that gospel is brought to us through your word. We're so thankful that in your plan for the local church, you raise up men who can teach that word and that the body can grow through the teaching of the word. Father, we pray that, that this church would continue to be one that's characterized by provision for the word going forth and being taught here. Father, we pray that that you would grow us in our love for everyone, that we would seek to do good, Father, to everyone that we have opportunity to do good to, the way that you have done good to us, even when we were your enemies. Father, we pray that we would have a unique, special spot, that we would feel that ratcheted up responsibility for caring for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that this church would be known for that as well, for your glory, we pray that you would work these things in us and that you would enlarge your kingdom, Father, through, uh, through the good news of the gospel. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.